I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast that, 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 that never ends. <laughs> and sometimes it starts really. Starts. Sometimes the start's a bit dodgy. What the middle though? The middle. Oh, right in the middle. Right in the middle. What are we doing today, Peter? We we've been doing quite a lot on uh, uh, the psalm and and some very serious stuff. But what are we doing today? Well, another chance for us to have a bit of, not not relaxation entirely, because there's some sad moments even in this one. But what we're doing is the second Royal Norfolk Regiment and how they rebuilt in England. Why did they have to rebuild, Gary? And this was an utterly tragic episode. I don't think either of us particularly enjoyed doing that one. No, I mean, they they needed to rebuild following the massacre at uh, Le Paradis. And, uh, you know, we described it as murderous. Yes, because that's well, what it, it was. It was murder, and yeah. it was awful. And uh, the the battalion had been cut to ribbons before that, and then of course nearly a hundred of them were killed at that massacre. Yeah. So where where did they come back to? Well, they came back and they concentrated at a place that uh, that, that you you've been to a lot in your life, uh, Idle, which is on the outskirts of Bradford. Or is it Idle? <laughs> it's Idle. Are you sure it's Idle and not Idle? Idle. Oh, the death of you. Yeah, that's just outside Bradford, which is in Yorkshire. Yorkshire. And they were back there by early June 1940. And uh, how, how do they rebuild uh, a battalion those days? Do they get everybody from, from Norwich? It's a Norfolk regiment. Does everybody come from Britannia Barracks? Or what do they do? No, I mean, clearly that, that would be impractical. So joining them was a draft of about 350 men from the infantry training centres of the Essex and Royal Berkshire regiments, uh, which were based at Blantford Camp in Dorset. So these are wartime conscripts, I presume, and they and they've completed their uh, their six month basic training or yeah, whatever. Yeah, just it is. completed it, and and most of them were not overly concerned about losing their original cap badges. And uh, you're going to open by being Lance Corporal Ben McRae, or McRae even of A Company, Second Norfolk's. We were all Berkshires then, but suddenly we were told that we were transferred. We would now be in the Royal Norfolk Regiment. We would keep our numbers and be issued with new cap badges, which was the Britannia. One or two blokes were, I don't go a lot on this. What's it all about? You know, 
but it didn't make any difference. Our pay wasn't altered. It was no big deal. It was just another regiment. We didn't know. We hadn't got a clue who they were until we got to Bradford. And uh, how do you think uh, people reacted to people from different parts of the country gathering together? Well, there's there's the usual regional banter, isn't there, which uh, uh, always leads to fun frolics and enlivening of the atmosphere. And you're going to give a bit of an illustration of this when you're going to be Private Fred Rolleston of D Company, 2nd Norfolk's. There was a little bit of rivalry in so much, of course, that they were Norfolk's and the majority of us posted were Londoners. You can tell by my accent. Yeah, perfect. Spot on. One of your best. It is. Cockneys, one of the early mornings, the Lance Corporal, a Norfolk, came round to call us. His brogue was, come on you over here and get on up out of it. From underneath the blankets, the whole chorus came out. Sweet! He wasn't very pleased. Oh dear, so that's the nickname of the. They were all called Swedes at that time. Now, uh, some of us, as in uh, the vegetable, vegetable, yes, yeah. not not the natives of Sweden. <laughs> now, um, some of the new drafts, uh, they knew they were joining a raid. Second Battalion Royal Norfolk, that's going to be uh, a regular battalion, and uh, they were a bit disturbed. They were, what they saw wasn't quite what they were expected. Uh, and who am I going to be? You're going to be Private Dennis Boast. Uh, of the HQ Company 2nd Norfolk's. We'd been highly trained, and when we saw these dishevelled soldiers, we, we were a bit upset. We were a little bit surprised that this was a regular army just turned up and not looking in very good shape. But that was very unfair of us. Why, why is it unfair of us? Well, we know. Well, we experience. know. The reasons become perfectly obvious when, uh, when the male finally catches up with them. And I'm going to be Corporal Bill Seymour of the 2nd Norfolk's. There were several of them standing round and the post sergeant was sorting out sacks of mail. As he was pulling out letters from the mailbags, they were saying such things as, no, he copped it, no, he copped it, he's back, right through these sacks of mail. It sounded very bad. And it was very bad. That's why all the drafts were there in the first place, of course. Now, the battalion moved from Idle, or as you would have it, Idle. I'm not actually... You've made me doubt myself. Oh, I wouldn't want you to doubt yourself. And uh, they went to uh, a new camp at Driffield Woods uh, on the 22nd of July, 1940. Uh, and at the same day... and Oh, Driffield, Driffield. I learnt to drive at Driffield. Because uh, that became the... It's uh, just outside Hull. And they became the... Uh, what was it? it Army driving Well, system. at that time it was Army. I think it became uh, all services later on. Now, uh, a new commanding officer arrived, and this is Lieutenant Colonel George Winter. A slightly enigmatic figure, and I'm going to be Private Stan Roffey of the Carrier Platoon, HQ Company, 2nd Norfolk. Very eccentric. If we went out on a scheme somewhere or a route march, he would lie in wait for you. He knew the route you were coming in. He'd hide himself somewhere. We'd be marching along and then you'd hear a voice shout out, What is that man doing with his rifle? You didn't know where he was. We were all looking round. We didn't know where the voice was coming from. We thought someone was pulling our leg. I'm sure he meant it more than aware of what was really happening. Um, what else is happening? Well, the battalion, they, they, they get a draft of a number of regular NCOs from the 1st Royal Norfolk Regiment who'd recently returned from India. So their role was to help stiffen the drafts of new recruits flooding in from the depot at Britannia Barracks and from other regiments as well. The ones we've been talking about, yeah. The, yeah. Med, the, 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 yeah, the Essex and all the rest of them. Yeah. yeah. Who's, among, who's amongst them? Now, well, amongst them is 
one of the old sweats was uh, was uh, the imposing figure, and I mean imposing figure. I remember interviewing him very well uh, of uh, Corporal Bert Fit, who'd already been in the army about seven years. Now Bert Fit was a giant of a man. I'm not sure how tall he was. He was about six foot two, but he seemed a lot bullet head. He looked like every senior NCO you've ever met in your life. This time, though, he's just a corporal. He'd go on to be RSM of the uh, Norfolks. He was an imposing figure, and he had a voice like a clap of thunder. Anyway, you're going to play the part of Corporal Bert Fit of A Company. He was already a corner for NCOs in the company, and the instructor was a Corporal Skullthorpe. Now, he was self-taught, and I had to go on this car from the day I arrived there. Of course, nobody knew anything about me, and the first day the chap was teaching wrong. He was just teaching the positions as he saw them, or as he thought of them. No laid-down sequence at all. This is what upset me. After the day had finished, I got the instructor and told him that he was teaching wrong. He complained to Company Sergeant Major, who sent for me, gave me a rocket, and put me before the Company Commander over it. When I went before the Company Commander, I told him what certificates I held, and he asked the Sergeant Major... Is this correct? Well, why isn't he on a card under Skullthorpe when he should be taking it? I was immediately put in charge of the card. That fits rapidly promoted to uh, sergeant, uh, something that never happened to you. Uh, well, certainly not rapidly. <laughs> and his hard-won experience is, 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 is vital in the months of training that follow. I mean, that's what you need. There's, there is a, there's no more important figure than, than NCOs in, in giving a, a unit training, giving them a, a sense of purpose, even if that sense of purpose is hating the, end, the training NCO. Um, now, amongst the drafts coming in, there's lots from various regiments. I want to make this very clear to rebuild the battalion. It was a large draft from the Royal Warwickshire Regiment. Brummies, uh, well, uh, supposedly Brummies. Again, they were all coming in from everywhere, I expect. Well, why why weren't battalions all from... Uh, this is just to put you on the spot. Why aren't battalions all taken from the same area like they were in the early days of the First World War? You mean like Powell's battalions where whole streets got wiped out? That's, that sort of battalion. That's it. So they weren't doing this in the Second World War. Now, um, the, um, the, the, the Royal Warwickshire's, uh, uh, some of these drafts weren't quite as someone like Bert Fit would want to them. And you're going to be Bert Foot again, eh, company? Well, like every other battalion, if you transfer men from one battalion to the other, you obviously don't transfer your best men. So we got a mixed bag. Quite a number of them had been called up for service and didn't care what they did or what happened to them. They weren't very helpful. Some of them were quite terrors. They'd go out and cause trouble if they could, chiefly fighting. Going out, getting drunk, missing the bus home and being late coming in. Now I want to make just uh, just a little bit of detail about Bert Fit and, uh, and also you, Gary, is that this sort of behaviour... Going out, getting drunk, coming in late, fighting, was exactly what Bert Fitt had been famous for in all the seven years of his service. So this is a, a, a poacher turned gamekeeper. <laughs> and you'll find that coming up again in a moment when uh, they literally do that. Uh, now, what about the officers? Where, where are they coming from? Um, well, they come from, from various sources as well. Now, now one of them, uh, Sam Horner, he's a member of a prosperous family of land agents who were based in Norwich, and his father had served with distinction with the 2nd Norfolk Regiment in Mesopotamia and knew exactly what path he wanted to follow. Now, advised by his father on the outset of war to be patient before enlisting, he first took the opportunity to taste life as a student 
at Trinity College, Cambridge, and found it perfectly acceptable. I bet he did. (laughs) Now, from there, where did he go, Pete? Uh, Well, uh, did he just become an ordinary soldier? (laughs) No, from there, he he went to the officer's cadet training unit before receiving his commission in 1940. Uh, Are we getting a tinge of the old boys' network here? Well, where do you think he ends up? I mean, the old boys' network certainly swings into action in his case, and he gets assigned to his father's old battalion. So, uh, all these young, inexperienced officers, officers like Sam Horner, they're arriving at the Second Norfolks. And uh, what, what, do you, what do you think the... How do you think the NCOs reacted? Uh, would they be uh, delighted? Well, most of the NCOs uh, sort of took the view that they'd forgotten more than uh, the, uh, the officers would ever know. And uh, Horner finds himself in command of the uh, newly promoted Sergeant Fit. And you're going to be... <laughs> Second Lieutenant Sam Horner of A Company, Second Norfolk's. I, I was received and welcomed. They knew I was coming. They knew a bit about my history and they knew my father was a famous First World War member. I found myself posted to 8 Platoon in A Company, which was my father's old company and platoon. I was introduced to my platoon sergeant, one Sergeant Fit. I thought when I first saw him, oh, Godfathers, he's going to be a difficult one. He was a pretty tough-looking old soldier to me, although he obviously wasn't very old. In practice, he was very helpful because I had the sense to ask him when I was stuck as to what to do next. When doing some training, I might say to him, I don't know, how the hell are we going to deal with this one? And he'd say, this is what I do, sir. (laughs) It really worked quite well and we got to know each other quite well. Lots of quite wells there. Uh, What do you think... Fit thought of him. Mm. Yeah, not so sure he, he took the same view, but uh, one story perhaps perfectly exemplifies this situation. And uh, I'm going to be Corporal Bill Seymour of the 2nd Norfolks. We used to go out on these firing ranges and this young 2nd Lieutenant gave the order. One round rapid fire. We nicknamed him One Round Rapid from that day onward. <laughs> one round rapid fire! <laughs> Oh, dear. oh dear, that is a great story, probably apocryphal, but actually, you know, more than one of them talked about that, so there you go. Um, now, there's another officer, well, were all the officers uh, young and inexperienced? No, certainly not, and uh, uh, Major Robert Scott certainly couldn't be described in that way. Uh, he was a former regular officer. He's a dugout, isn't he? Yeah, he'd served in the First World War, and actually he had a very unique way of drawing attention to himself, that was quite simply unforgettable, armed as he often was with a sawn-off 303 Lee Enfield. Now you're laughing. Why? Is, just, is, is that not normal to have a no, sawn That's That's very not normal, um, particularly with regards to the recoil, I should think. But you're going to be Second Lieutenant Sam Horner once more of A, a Company. Company. Yep, I am. The day after I arrived, A Company were on the range and I was told to go on the range with them. I didn't know what on earth I was supposed to do and I stood there wondering when suddenly there was the most awful explosion down my right ear and a sheet of flame. <laughs> and I thought, oh, God, what's happened? It was followed by... <laughs> I'm Scott. Oh, God, Pirate Scott. I heard you were coming. That was my welcome from Robert Scott. He then said, have you heard of little Willie here? I said, yes, I have, sir. Voices going all over the place here. Yes, I have, sir. My father's told me all about him. 
Well, he said, you're going to fire it down the range. I'll show you how to do it. You take it out and you have to have that arm absolutely rigid. If it's bent, you'll kill yourself. <laughs> so have it rigid. So it was loaded. I held it absolutely rigid, fired and actually hit the target. But my arm went back straight over my head. Terrifying weapon. It was typical Robert. He was really a most dreadful fellow when he wasn't being shot at. <laughs> he means in action, doesn't he? Yeah. So this is the sort of person who's just trouble. I'm just trying to work out what rank Robert Scott was and, and where he came from by that accent. Major. Uh, and uh, clearly he came from Cornwall. Right, OK. Or Pirate Land. Now, another... Actually, Pirate, pirate is a good voice for Robert Scott. <laughs> pirate Land. Now, another young second lieutenant whose father had commanded Scott later in the war found that he, he was being taken under his wing. And I'm going to be second lieutenant Dickie Davis of D Company, second Norfolk. Oh, I hope you're going to do Scott's accent the same. Otherwise, you'll confuse you'll confuse the listeners, Gary. Scott said, "Are you by any chance the son of Borneo Davis?" I said, "Yes, my father was in Borneo." He said, "I was in Samoan. I'll teach you to be a bloody good soldier like he was. I'll teach you all your father would have taught you." I think he chased me unduly hard to make sure I did things right. He said, "I owe this to your father." Was that, that was, was, that that was as enough? terrible as mine. Oh dear. Sorry, listeners. We apologise unreservedly. Now, uh, whatever their rank, uh, everyone comes to know Scott. I mean, he's, later on, he's the colonel, the lieutenant colonel, the uh, commanding there. But he, by sight and sound, he sort of stood out from uh, his fellow man. And he you're, did. I'm you're going to be, to I'm be. be Private Fred Hazel. Oh, he was a great bloke. D Company. He said this. Uh, I was making my way down to D Company for the first time and I passed through B Company lines. Major Scott was outside his tent shaving and I walked past him and he bellowed out, Come back, that man! Oh, God, it's gone worse. I went across to him and he said, Don't you normally salute officers? Considering the fact he was stripped to the waist, I didn't even know who he was. So I said, I'm sorry, sir, but I didn't notice you. The biggest bloody man in the British Army, and you didn't notice me? <laughs> Jim lad. Now, that's probably true, because physically, Scott was indeed was. an imposing figure. He was loud, tick, abrasive. What are you thinking of? Tick. But somehow strangely reassuring for men who knew that they would have to fight face-to-face with enemy infantry. Well, well, two out of three, Pete. Two out of three, yeah. Now, um, I'm going to be Bugler Burt May of HQ Company of the Second Norfolks. And he says... He's talking about Scott again. He's talking he? about Scott. He was a big bloke, over six foot, and he was broad as well. They made a song up about him. Ten thousand miles away, one can hear him. He was born after his time. He should have been born in the Elizabethan area. Area? Era. He could have sunk the old armada on his own. It's quite easy to mix up error and area. Of course it is. It is. <laughs> the, with your eyesight. Yeah. Well, it's getting better. Now, gradually, all these disparate parts... So what are you talking Old officers, young officers, uh, people from Berkshire, people from Norwich, people... Regulars. Warwickshires. Warwickshires. All being landers, forged together... Forged. ...to form the new 2nd Battalion Royal Norfolk Regiment. Now, a regular battalion only in name... 
it was nevertheless being moulded into a formidable fighting force, which could have been the credit to the, the, the pre-war army. Well, I'm going to be Second Lieutenant Sam Horner, A Company still, and he's going to give his feelings. Good, steady no- old Norfolk chaps, many of them regular soldiers, a lot of drafts from the Royal Warwicks, Brummies, Brummies, and the best of the Brummies were absolutely first class. Then a lot of Cockneys from various London sources, and they were marvellous. Hooray! We were all... Pu- <laughs> We were putting all this together as a coherent battalion, weeding out the bad ones. That would have done oh, for you. Yeah. <laughs> and kept and keep the good ones. Uh, sorry, weeding out the bad ones as you do, posting them back to the depot with a bad foot or something. Any old excuse. <laughs> Quite ruthlessly got rid of the bad ones and kept the good ones until we were all working very well together. And it was a, a marvellous combination, especially when the bullets were flying about. The steady old Norfolk chap, very steady, plodding on, the mercurial cockney, wanted to go faster, rushing about like a mad thing. The two of these gelled together to form a marvellous combination. They would. And they would, and they did. The the the, the second, well, they're, we'll... If you follow these podcasts, you'll hit, they did brilliantly when they went to Burma. Now, there's still a lot, long way to go. This is training. They've got to prove themselves in action yet. Uh, and there's a mountain of training to climb, isn't there? What, well, yeah, what idea? Got, what have they got to do? What well, have they got to do? You've got weapons training, route marching, tactical exercises, rapid deployment schemes. Now, this is all against the backdrop of endless specialist training in what mortars, kind of mortars, Bren carriers, Bren guns signals and all the myriad cornucopia of equipment needed by a modern infantry battalion at war. I'll put that in specially to trip you up. Because cornucopia. I'll write some of these. Yes, I didn't yeah. think you'd be able to manage that one. What's it mean, Gary? Um, stuff. Stuff. Yeah, well, Various well, stuff. Do you, do you know, I think that's as good as any other answer. Now, they were not to know that Hitler wouldn't invade that summer of 1940 and there was a real urgency about the anti-parachutist exercises that they were doing. And meanwhile... The Luftwaffe sent a reminder that they had by no means gone away. And you're once more going to be Private Fred Hazel of D Company. We were on a, a route march almost back to camp when Driffield Airport was bombed in great strength. A whole load of bombers came over and they plastered the place. On the radio that evening, Lord Hawhaw said, We saw you Norfolk's all scurrying for cover. It's your turn next. You have heard Lord Hawhaw, no, haven't you? No, not recently. <laughs> Everybody just sort of poked their fingers up. But what do you think he meant by poke their fingers up? I'm just doing it to you now. V for victory, I yeah, think. At, at the thought of it. The most traumatic thing was they left one hangar standing. The following day, they sent one bomber over on its own and flattened the last one. Quite incredible. Now, that's interesting because that's the sort of story where I think, I wonder if that's ap- apocryphal or true. That's the thing with all... You could check it. In fact, somebody who's really good at history could check it. But do you know what I mean? Do you know what I mean about two perfect stories? Hmm. Uh, just maybe slightly... Oh, I should think you could find that out on the internet if you wanted to. Well, I'll leave that to you, Gary. You can put a post a little note up about it, perhaps. Could do. Now, in the post-Dunkirk <laughs> paranoia about fifth column activities and general spy scares, it was considered essential to set up some anti-espionage patrols. And uh, who am I going to be? You're going to be Corporal Bill Seymour of the Second Norfolks. There was a lot of reports of enemy spies, light shining from the trees in the woods. We used to have a patrol go round, an NCO with five or six chaps with you. You'd go all round the grounds looking out for any lights or any suspicious things. 
It was very eerie at times, walking through these woods and the fields. You'd hear a rustle. And when you got closer, there was a big fat cow standing there. Now, we heard, isn't that funny? Because just think, 20 years before, their dads were busy shooting cows in the field, probably. Uh, I think we had a couple of stories in in our uh, our podcast about training with the British Army in 1914-18, shooting cows on those things. Anyway. uh, We did. Now, you're going to continue the story by by being Private Stan Roffey of the Carrier Platoon, HQ Company, 2nd Norfolk's. Oh, Emma, why? Why do I want to do that? Now, uh, the, yeah, it's just, uh, it, 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 this is a story, it's basically just a give and take of army life, isn't it? This is, because uh, while they're doing all this training, it's still going on, uh, life. So the, this is what Stan Roffey says. George Lee, he was a bit of a comedian, always getting up to tricks. George said to me, Stan, we'll have a laugh here. Come with me and we'll go into the signals tent. We went into the tent and they were all sitting there and George said, guess what's happened? There's lice, 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 fleas in the camp. And we've all got to have our hair cut from our privates and under our armpits. Ah, Christ. We left their tent and went back. Then George said to me, let's have a look and see what they're doing. When we went in, they'd got their trousers down and there they were cutting their hair off their privates with the scissors from their housewife. And that's just a great practical joke. And I love the idea of them all going, oh, bloody lice. <sighs> I would never tell lies to some of my friends to try and get them to do something no. like that. And what's a housewife, Pete? Housewife is a husuf. And it's a little kit of uh, of uh, things, uh, sewing, sewing cotton, gear, cottons, scissors, that sort of thing. Yeah. Every soldier has them. I think it comes to husif. Now, an even more successful joke was played on the Provost Sergeant. And Corporal Bill Seymour says... The Provost Sergeant's name was Cassidy, nicknamed Hopalong, naturally. He, like several of the old soldiers, liked his glass of ale and he often came home a bit tiddly at night. In these woods it used to be pitch dark and it was muddy. There was all these bell tents with all the ropes all over the place. The regimental police part of the woods was right up in an isolated corner so he could find his way through easily to his own tent. He'd lined the passageway with luminous bark which was prevalent in these woods from a certain species of tree. He came in at night and just walked down in between these lines of luminous bark into his own tent. One night, some of us us thought we'd play a joke on old Hopalong, so we redirected this luminous bark so that it led right into a slip trench. Lo and behold, Hopalong came along, whoosh, straight into the trench. Some years afterwards, he joined the London branch. One night, we told him about this. Oh, it was you bastards, he said. I got scratched to blazes, but at least he could see the funny side of it. Oh, but he couldn't at the time, definitely. Now, uh, there was one terrible horror. (laughs) I mean, the Norfolks had suffered enough, but the local population inflicted something even worse on them when they put on a, a sort of concert for them. Uh, and uh, I'm going to be Private Fred Hazel uh, of D Company. And he says, some of these concert parties laid on by the church societies and things like that consist of dear little old ladies who would stand up and sing, <laughs> Britannia, pretty awful stuff, really. So, of course, the lads just used to disappear. After 10 minutes, there was nobody left in the marquee. The company commander said, Hazel, you'll patrol the outside of the marquee and don't let anybody leave. So if I saw anybody climb underneath the side walls, I stamped on their fingers and they went back in again to that awful suffering. Can you imagine? 
You've been uh, at Naughty Lumps concerts. You've suffered. I can imagine, yeah. I've suffered. Now, as the colder weather sets in, the, the living conditions in the tents steadily deteriorated until in October, the battalion was moved to the village of Hesel, which lay opposite Hull across the River Humber. Ooh, a big splashy thing. The big splashy thing. Now, they're built in large requisitioned houses, Pete. Oh, yeah. So the officers would establish a proper mess in one of these, one of the bigger houses, I presume. And, uh, and, and, that must have been quite interesting because you've got all these new officers uh, having to settle in and there'd still be some of the older types, wouldn't there? there some, would of the, be. some of the ones who'd be, even been through France. Uh, how did they gel together? Well, you're going to tell us. You're going to be Second Lieutenant Maurice Francis of the Second Norfolks. They were a bit cliquey. There were some officers that I almost didn't come to know. There were only 30 of us or so in the mess. Those in my own company, I naturally soon came to know because we were working together all day long. But otherwise, little cliques used to develop. It was quite competitive between the officers. One felt it, competing for the favour of the senior officers. There were quite a lot of regular officers still there, and there was a bit of a gap. Some overcame it better than others. Murray Brown was very good at that. He was a regular, but it didn't make any difference. I can understand the regulars taking that view a little bit. After all, they joined the army before the war, and they had their rules. Then all of a sudden, they were being invaded by all these outsiders. Now, they're also, these older officers, although a lot of the younger officers wouldn't know, they're they're watching their juniors, seeing how they behave, and who would and wouldn't make the grade. They could tell, you know, things like drinking too much in the mess, or or, or just being inappropriate. Um, Meanwhile, uh, so the officers' mess, important. But what's more important to a battalion, do you think? Well, the sergeant's mess. Um, so I would imagine they were very keen to establish one uh, as well. A properly functioning one. And you're going to explain, uh, well, Sergeant Perfect, what better man to explain this? If you've got a good sergeant's mess, you've got a good battalion. You can always guarantee that. They work together, always ready to listen to anything that came up. Always keen to help one another. You had your bar, used to drink about 10 or 12 Point twelve pints of beer in a session. No, it never affected me the next morning. You could drink what you liked, provided, uh, providing stand on your feet and you were sensible. Nobody would say anything to you. But if you got drunk so you fell down, that was a disgrace and you'd be in hot water the next day. Hang on, can we just go back to that? <laughs> 10 or 12 pints. Yeah, I'd struggle with that. I'd be on my back. So and, and if not, I'd go home. <laughs> That's so naughty. Um, now, uh, if you were newly promoted, I mean, some of the uh, some of the conscripts uh, must yeah. have been must have felt it must have been quite intimidating. People like fit in the you know in the in in the mess, quite strict, all the rest of it. Um, so I'm going to be Sergeant Fred Hazel of D Company, and and he he he, he tells me what it was like. He says this. I was probably the second conscript to enter the sergeant's mess. For a long, long time, it was very difficult to join in the conversation because they were all talking about what they did in Egypt in 1931, what happened in Pune in 1933. Do you remember old so-and-so and all this, that and the other? You were completely left out. You just sort of sat there and listened. Slowly, of course, more conscripts came in the mess. And in the end, there was quite a good blend. Of course, everything's moving on, everything develops. Um, so what are the men doing? Well, they're, they're sort of roaming about the cheery taverns of Hesel. Oh, Hesel's famous for its cheery taverns. Now, in the main, they made their own entertainment. <laughs> D 
There was, of course, the usual army rivalry with other battalions that had the temerity to trespass onto their territory. So a, a battalion would have a, a, a pub that was it. Yeah, it's and the main enemy of the Norfolks were the first Royal Scots. Surely they're the main... They're the main enemy of everyone, really, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. uh, who were billeted just the other side of the Humber. It's a bit of an anti-tank obstacle. Does it stop the uh, Royal Scots? No, the uh, Royal Scots pay the Norfolks a friendly visit and the two proud regiments had a, a bit of a bizarre mating ritual too. And you're going to be Private Stan Roffey uh, of the uh, Carrier Platoon HQ Company. I'm not sure mating r- ritual is the right word for a punch-up, but it, uh, this is what he says. I'd had a few drinks and I knew there was going to be trouble. The looks and the arguments, I could see it happening. They were tanked up with beer, the Royal Scots. They were good at that. <laughs> I thought, I'm going to get out of this. What a sensible man. <laughs> But I was too late. I couldn't get out. All of a sudden, somebody threw a gas mask at somebody. What up? I thought, well, I've got to join in here. I can't stand here watching. Well, that's soldier life. Uh, <laughs> punching and kicking. And, I, and then I thought, bugger this. Oh, not quite so good. There was a billiard table. And I got under it, out of the way. It gradually quieted down. And it all broke up. They got the police up there. I think the public had phoned them up. We weren't far from the billets and I just walked in and when I went to undress, I got billiard balls in my pocket. I don't know how they got there. Whether I'd picked them up to throw them or what. Well, yes. Yeah. Now, Colonel Winter, he'd appointed Sergeant Bert Fitt as his provost sergeant. Ah, this is what you said, isn't it? Yes, this is Poacher turned gamekeeper here, isn't it? Oh yeah. He's uh, he's adopted that tried and trusted principle, and uh, he he sets a poacher to be his gamekeeper, and and fits being the despair of Provost. He was sergeants. a real troublemaker in the pre- especially in the pre-war years. He would fi- he he'd do bare knuckle fighting. Local and now, what's fair. his job? He's a provost sergeant. And Stop it all got, that. He's got a <laughs> uh, was he keen on that job? Well, he took it with an enthusiasm that. Uh, was almost as excessive as his pre-war activities. And Sergeant Bert Fitt says this. The Royal Scots in the Norfolk used to fight like blazes. Every night you'd get some of them fighting. I'd got hold of the, I'd get hold of the first one that was fighting nearest me and I'd sling him in a room for a few hours to quieten them down. He means to sell, doesn't he? Yeah. He does. Put them on a charge and they'd be up the next morning. The second in command was Bob Scott. When you marched an into him, you give your evidence. He used to ask you straight out, who was winning? If you said that the Royal Scot was winning, they got punished. But if the Norfolk was winning, they used to get a rocket. But Scott let them get away with it. Now, they're two, they're, these two people, by the way, Scott and uh, Fit, they're going to be all over the rest of the podcasts so on the Norfolk. They're, 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 a, they're a classic pair, aren't they? They're, they're, what a pair of characters they are. Now, what does Fit do? Well, I can picture him doing it. As I can see him in my mind. He used to patrol the mean streets of Vessel. Sorry. Why do you find that funny? I've, just, been, I've been to Hessel. <laughs> I haven't been to Hessel, but I, I now have this picture of some sort of Wild West town. And uh, and he took to wearing plimsolls uh, instead of his iron-studded army boots. Why? Why, Gary? Well, he didn't want to upset the locals, uh, but also... No, I don't think that's it. <laughs> he wanted to catch uh, his um, miscreants boom, boom, or boom, victims boom, boom, boom. all unawares. He'd now, creep up behind him, wouldn't he? <laughs> Yeah, his, his punishment parade soon acquired a reputation which was second to none. 
Now, uh, the, so there's a, now we've got a, a more serious side just overcoming this uh, because, uh, uh, well, they're at Hessel. So what's happening close to Hessel? Well, they've got, uh, they're within sight of the uh, ferocious German air raids on Hull. And uh, the battalion, it's like a reservoir, isn't it, of manpower to help out. Uh, the, well, the, the, over, the, the emergency services must have been stretched to the very limits, mustn't they? And uh, on one occasion, uh, this... It's a funny story, but it, the, 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 it, 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 it. it's against the backdrop of, uh, of, of uh, terror, really, from, yeah. from uh, the air raids. So Fit and, he's, and a party of men, they're sent across to help. And they've got the water hoses out because uh, there's a fire in the timber stacks area of the docks. And you can picture it, stacks of, of timber stacked high and they're on fire. And then suddenly... And you're playing this part. Winky Fit becomes uncomfortably aware that things were hotting up, but not quite as one would want. Uh, carry on, Provost Sergeant. Things were getting very warm behind me, and I thought it was the heat from the fire that was burning. I was controlling this hose, and all of a sudden, somebody put a hose on me. Oh, I wasn't very pleased. But when I put my hand behind to see how wet it was, I just felt bare skin. All my seat and my trousers was all burnt out. I was on fire and didn't know it. They had put the fire out. It was rather embarrassing because I'd got no seat in my trousers. Now, that's a funny quote, but the next one isn't funny, is it? And you, you, Because um, other parties were clearing the roads, shoveling up all... I mean, houses falling, the roads, all the rest of it, clearing the rubble away. And, 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 and of course, there's civilian casualties and there's, there's, oh, there's terrible things and you're going to be Private Dick Fidemont. He's normally a cheery cove, I'll tell you, I remember him well. Uh, and what does he say? I saw a young girl, 15 or 16. She lay partly on the pavement, her legs on the road and a cycle near. She looked as though she was asleep. I touched the pulse on the left wrist, pushing two fingers down and there was no pulse there. She looked like wax and she was obviously dead, but there wasn't a mark on her. I was told it was blast. Now, that's terrible. In January 1941, the battalion sent on combined operations training. Uh, they go to HMS Glenairn. The dogs farted. That's a shame. Now, this is a sad bit as well. It's not reached me yet. Oh. HMS Glenairn and Lock Fine. And they're one of the first units to try out the new assault landing craft. Now, these are going to be all the rage, if you know what I mean, in uh, Sicily and the rest of it. They're, these are assault landing craft, all the rest of it. Uh, they're, they're for the long term. They're going to, for the invasion of Europe, for D-Day and all the rest of it. Uh, what do you think it was like, Scotland, in January, uh, for training uh, for training on assault landing craft? Oh, it'd be like a, a, a midsummer's day, I should think. And I'm going to be Sergeant Fred Hazel, who uh, doesn't find it like a midsummer's day. And he says this. We were out at three... But he never complained. Never. We were roused at three or four in the morning with klaxons going. You hopped out of your hammock, put your gear on and reported to your station on deck on the landing craft. Then down the scrambling nets into the assault landing craft, which were bobbing about down below. That all sounds great fun. But this was in sub-zero temperatures. It was bitterly cold, bitterly cold. To create the impression you were uh, way out to sea, the assault landing craft would bob around for, say, 20 or 25 minutes before going into the beach. <laughs> These flat bottom boats used to send spray all over you. And although we were kitted out with leather jer jerkins, your hands got so cold that you just couldn't even feel the rifle. You held it as though you were nursing a baby. You'd touch down and run up the beach, which, which was at that time covered in 18 inches of snow. 
We ran 20 yards inland, flopped down on the snow, lay there for 20 minutes or so, and then that was the exercise finished. We'd re-embarked back to the ship. By this time, you'd be so bloody cold that when you got aboard the that the heat would hit you. It got to be 80 degrees plus on the ship, and after a few minutes, all the joints of your hands would start to throb. God, it was so painful. Now, recently, you've, you've had a bit of an experience like this because I took you on your holidays with some of the other management committee, and we took you to uh, York and Durham, didn't we? And you suffered the, the, the tortures of hell, didn't you? It was cold. It was hilly. It was the north of England. You couldn't get any sleep. You were surrounded by people who hated you. And I was with you. I was, I was like an oasis of calm, wasn't I? Yeah, I might start calling you father. Thank you. <laughs> because you're, you know, like a father to me. You looked uh, after me so well. That's right. So you can, under, you can empathise with the suffering, the cold, the freezing, the wet, the misery of this. Well, it's just normal life in Scotland. Or Northern England. Yeah. Now, back again at Hesel, the training continued remorselessly with a particular emphasis on route marches because it was felt the men had not been fit enough in France in 1940. Yeah, I get the sense this might have been that Montgomery effect we've talked about before. Montgomery was very keen on getting the men as fit as possible. However, this battalion doesn't entirely do it all as Montgomery went. Montgomery was very insistent that everybody do it. And you're going to be Sergeant Fred Rolleston of D Company. There were very intensive route marches brought about because of the lack of fitness in France. Every other day, a 10-mile route march in full-service marching order, a fair weight. Then it was stepped up to 25 miles a day, twice a week. The final one was a 50-mile march in 24 hours. You were not allowed back in until you got the last man home. That meant the fit ones were carrying two or three rifles, somebody had got the brain gun, and the weak ones were being held up either either side by two of the others to get them home. You had to get the whole squad back and you couldn't go into your houses until you'd got the last man back. Now, uh, in charge of them at this point was still... Uh, remember, we said he was a bit of a character, was Colonel Winter. He was a, a you know, a, a press-on soldier and he may have slightly misjudged the mood of his men when uh, he was showing off in front of the his opposite number in the 1st 8th Battalion Lancashire Fusiliers, another fine body of men. Anyway, he was showing off and... Uh, uh, Fred Hazel certainly wasn't impressed. And you're going to be Sergeant Fred Hazel. I knew that. Of D Company. I knew that. I was just setting the scene for a bit of excitement. We'd been out for the best part of 24 hours. We'd crept off at the crack of dawn one day, done manoeuvres, and we were due to be transported back to the billets because we were then about 25 to 30 miles away from the billet. The CEO of the Lancashire Fusiliers turned to Colonel Winter and said, oh, men look knackered. <laughs> he said, they're not. I'll prove it to you. He sent the transport off and we walked back. Nice of him. <laughs> he was very unpopular all round. And this was the sort of typical action one would have expected from him. It means he don't like him. Had he walked with us, I don't think anybody would have complained. But when he drives alongside you in his open wagon, that is really irritating. Hmm. Hmm. And that's not what Montgomery, who was in, you know, in favour, he was insistent all ranks do this. That was part. That was what Montgomery was after. Anyway, uh, divisional exercise. They're they're on the Ilkley Bore. 
Ilkley Moor. Ilkley Moor Bar Tat, I was about to say, but I mispronounced it entirely. And uh, while they were out there, I love the next quote, and it, it's from uh, Private Dick Fidiment, and you're going to read this. And and, and he, he, took, he takes the opportunity while they're out on the moors to play a, a really brilliant practical joke, which I think shows... it. It, it just deserves a, a bigger audience, and I'm hoping this podcast will, will, will allow more of you to appreciate the sheer fun of this quote. Uh, go, Dick, go. There was myself, Jimmy Wright, Alfie Clements, Percy Utting, Tommy Nutt. Off we tramped down to Ilkley to see if there was any chance of a drink and some cigarettes for the boys who smoked. No luck, but they did say that they had some cider. We had a drop, not much, probably a couple of halves. Then we started back to camp. It was getting dusk, a slight drizzle, and we cut across the marshes. Jimmy Wright and some of these London boys hadn't seen a cow in a field. As you know, if you cross a meadow where there are cow, they tend to group together. If they see you, they're curious. They'll come towards you and nuzzle you, but they wouldn't hurt you. But Jimmy didn't know this. Oh no, we were coming across this field and there was a lone mist, a bit ethereal, Looks a bit weird, and you could see the cattle. Me, being evil, I said to Percy Hutting, we'll get old Jimmy going, tell him they're balls. Jimmy was plodding along in front. He was a big fellow. Jimmy, these bloody balls, they're coming towards us. I said to Percy, pass the word discreetly. When we say run, run. We lumbered forwards. I could run. I was fairly athletic. So could the others. But Jimmy, no way. He smoked quite a bit. He was cursing and blinding. Run, Jimmy, run! These fields had dikes. When you got close, you could see a few reeds and the sheen of the water. We run and jumped, three or four foot. Jimmy, he came thumping up and he stopped as soon as he saw the water. The cows weren't charging, but in his imagination, he could see himself being gored to death. Jump, Jimmy! He went back a pace or two and he jumped. Needless to say, he didn't make it. He was in it up to his knees. We were falling all over laughing. I think that's a great story. I just jump, Jimmy, jump. Run, Jimmy. Cows can on occasion be quite aggressive, can't they? They are. They are the enemy of the Hart family. Once I was attacked by, uh, saved by my brother-in-law, and then my sister was attacked and not saved by my brother-in-law. I've often wondered about that. But, uh, and, uh, yeah, she uh, ended up being more, more by, uh, trodden on by a So perhaps that was uh, more dangerous than it at first appeared. And perhaps. Jimmy was right to be in fear. So. Now, during the various exercises and trials of 1940-41, the NCOs got to know the long-term qualities and limitations of their officers. Some <laughs> were not just wet behind the ears. Some were just plain incompetent. Oh, short rabbit! <laughs> what? Oh, I've forgotten it. One, <laughs> one rap- rapid fire. I forgot the orders. I'm, now, not, I'm even more incompetent than anyone. You're going to be Sergeant Fred Hazel of D Company. We got on pretty well together. I, I suppose to some degree I carried the man. You don't let these things look apparent. It was all done rather discreetly. He couldn't read a map. He couldn't find his way out of a paper bag, which is a bit of a disadvantage when you're an uh, infantryman. We had an, ex- an exercise laid off the officers and they were trailed by the sergeants who then had to report back on their performance. Mine came straight out of the company commander's tent and went in the wrong direction, right from the very start. That was the sort of thing you had to put up with. You had to say, why don't we try going over there for a change? 
I'd do it as tactfully as I could. He was courageous, but he was the sort of chap you could well imagine leading you all into a disaster. He was not the sort of fellow that I, I would pin any faith in him coming out of the other end. Now, you had an expression for this. I think you used in one of the training things, which is something you wouldn't follow the officer to. We wouldn't follow the officer to the, to the chip shop at the end of the road. Yeah. 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 Now, now, despite this, the more intelligent young officers gradually gained experience and they begin to form a constructive working relationship with their long-suffering platoon sergeants. I think, and I think this is because we can make too many jokes about this because there are intelligence officers and there, and and so that some of them do learn. It is a learning process, uh, and a second lieutenant is an officer under training, isn't he? That's yeah, and the relationship with the sergeant is actually really important. Yeah, uh, to both parties. Uh, I'm not. I'm not saying that the the sergeants knew everything because they didn't, but it does teach. You know how to work together uh, with varying degrees of success. And Fred Hazel's bloke sounds hopeless, but uh, I'll, I'll be honest. Uh, Second Lieutenant Morris Francis, uh, he, I think he became a good officer. And you've got a quote from him now. You're talking about his platoon. He's sergeant. talking about his platoon sergeant. Yeah, he was a nice chap who took me under his wing. He quite obviously recognised a very raw young officer. He knew much more about army ways than I did, and he helped me along. The troops knew what was going on, understood it, and didn't object to it. They accepted officers as a necessary evil and learnt to work with them. One got to feel those who respected one. Also, the distinction between respect for the individual officer as opposed to respect for the rank. I was protected by my rank, and whatever I did, within limits, however wrong, in training particularly, I would be supported by my senior officers, but I could tell by the look in the eyes of the chaps if I did something which they thought was a bit off. Rank was there as a fallback. That was all. And that's right, isn't it? I mean, he's an intelligent young officer, and he, he did he does things wrong, and he gradually learns, and that's the idea of it. And and uh, if you ask any British officer now, they'll still they'll still tell you the most important man to them was their platoon sergeant, and he taught them more than Sanders probably in many ways, uh, certainly about men and about. And, and their lance corporals, they'd say. Yeah, no. Oh. <laughs> Not the sort of lance corporal you were. Oh, OK. Now, the men knew that they were destined for overseas service, but they, they didn't know where they were going. It remained a secret. And then finally, they get a rather substantial clue. And you're going to be where you started, really, Sergeant Ben McRae of the Carrier Platoon HQ Company. We were issued with tropical kit, that horrible Toby, khaki drill shorts, sh sh shirts, shorts that turned down, socks. We walked along the road from the headquarters to our billets, loaded with all this gear, and they said, don't see nothing. <laughs> I mean, the most naive person in the world couldn't have failed to see that the unit, sometime or other, was, was booked to go overseas. Hmm. Now, there's something wrong with your dog. <laughs> Yeah, he's moved again, hasn't he? He's, he's presenting his backside to you, I think. Yeah. In, now, uh, so in December of 1941, the, the battalion move. Uh, where are they moving to? Uh, they moved to a concentration area around the village of Fairford, which is and in And who's concentrating there? Well, many of the men and... and that second division. Oh, sorry, yes. Uh, the second division. I thought I'd said that. Did I not say that? Oh, I missed that out, Pete. Sorry, mate. Sorry. I just wanted I, to know. Oh, Jesus. Ah uh, ha! Sorry. Uh, yeah, Fred. Can, Fred oh. is uh, alive and kicking. 
Well, not for much longer if he keeps doing this. Now, many of the men and several of the local women were heartbroken, heartbroken to see them leave, Hazel. And I'm going to be Sergeant Ben McRae again. He says this. The night we left, we were down a ferry boat and it was funny. All the girlfriends came in that night and they were all crying their eyes out. One of the buglers, Sid, he had two big fat girls crying their eyes out all over him. <laughs> it's quite a, a nice... But sad thing. But rumours are still going on. They've been given the tropical kit, but the British Army is perfectly capable of being given tropical kit and saying, hey, this is just a ruse. We're on our way to Iceland. And uh, and this is a private Dick Fitter, but always one of my favourites of the Second Norfolk's. We knew by then we were off somewhere, but where we didn't know. Then, as in every army, you get the rumours. We went everywhere from Hawaii to Iceland to the North Pole to the South Pole. You name it, we were going. Absolute nonsense. Now, they're, they're inspected. Uh, as ever, before any battalion goes to war, they're inspected. So this time it was the King and Churchill. That must have cheered them up enormously. And then the battalion was once again ready for war. Yeah, but parting from loved ones was often traumatic, particularly if they'd got children. And you're going to be Sergeant Walter Glide, uh, sorry, Gilding, Gilding yeah. of the Mortar Platoon HQ Company. I find this one sad because uh, he'd already had a rough time. He was one of the ones who'd managed to escape. He'd yeah. been in the 1940 campaign. Anyway, he says this, and I just want you to think about what this means. Think about, I mean, nowadays people don't play cricket. Uh, because uh, their uh, their wives are pregnant, uh, or football. But in those days, you just, oh, here he is. This is what Gilding says. I had a special 72 hours compassionate leave when my baby was born. I went to Wisbeck, which is the other side of King's Inn, and saw my wife and child. While I was on that special leave, I applied for a further extension of 72 hours, so I had six days leave to see my baby. She was only three days old when I left. Um, that's why he had the extension. He hadn't been mm. born in that time. Wow. I just think, you know, imagine how how you'd feel. Your baby's just been born, and you're off, and you might never see your wife or your, or this baby again ever because you could be killed, and a lot of them were. So uh, overall, I'd say that war's a pretty awful thing, even in the lighter-hearted moments. Now, on that note, Pete, I'd like to thank you for today, and. Uh, I need to get out of this room and leave Fred. To his uh, to stew in his own juices. When I, think, I say I think juices, that's appropriate. there must be some liquid to give that smell. Cheers. Cheers, Pete. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?